Now, I'm sure that as all of you, or most of you who attend regularly, are undoubtedly aware, I am in the process of doing what I call my annual review and evaluation of the ministry of Calvary Bible Church. We try to do this annually. And we do our measuring against the biblical purpose for the reason and existence of the church. I am not measuring ourselves against the standards or imagined criteria of man's ideas or philosophies, but solely against those of the Word of God. That's why for some of you it's going to seem very different and odd because man's standards are always contrary or very opposite to the to the standards of God. And I believe that we've gone a long way off from following the stipulations that God has given in his word as far as the church is concerned. And so I do not consider success of a church ministry based on programs, attendance, or even how many souls will want to Christ. But first and foremost, I measure our effectiveness or our success against Faithfulness to God and to his word. That comes first. Faithfulness to God and to his word. Because it's possible for us to have all kinds of apparent success, but that success is not based on the word of God. And we are not looking for that. We want to be faithful to God and to his word. I believe that that is in keeping with the word of God, especially the teaching of the Apostle Paul. This is what he says, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ. Notice now, not servants of man. Servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's the word of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. King James says, one be found faithful. And so that's how I measure effectiveness or success. How faithful have we been to the word of God? Now, I believe it's safe to say that we have here on numerous occasions established the fact that overall, the ultimate purpose of the church as well as for individual Christians is to glorify the triune God. And although it may be somewhat tedious to most of you by now, I nonetheless, in the words of the Apostle Paul, present our well-known chart to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. And if you are so inclined, as, the, as it goes on the screen, I invite you to read the captions as they appear on the screen. All right? Notice now, overall purpose is what? To glorify the triune God. How do you do this? First, by completing the ministry of Christ on earth. As we'll see in a moment, that's the general purpose. How do we accomplish that? By evangelizing the lost and discipling believers toward Christ's likeness. This is what we call the immediate purpose or the objective of the church. How do you do that? By pro this is by providing opportunities for believers to encounter... What? The triune God, how? Through worship. The word of God, how? Through biblical instruction. And the people of God, through fellowship. And the unbeliever, through evangelism. 
Now notice the word encounter. It's not just have casual contact, but it's an encounter with God where there's a response from you on the part of your experience with God. Now, the, the means of accomplishing our mission then are worship, instruction in the word, fellowship with God's people, and reaching out in evangelism. This process, if followed properly, will produce true disciples, mature Christians. Now here, I want to emphasize a vitally important truth, one I believe that has been and is still being misrepresented by much of the church today. It is this. The church's mandate is to make disciples, not to make converts. You say, well, there cannot be disciples without converts. That's true. But the idea is that the focus is on making disciples because when the process put into place properly, the disciples then make the converts. You understand what I say? And then the cycle continues. But you don't begin with outside the world. You begin with close fellowship to God, which is that worship. Now, as I demonstrated last Lord's Day, I believe, a convert could be seen as the fruit. A true disciple, however, is seen as the fruit that remains, then goes on to plant itself and to bear other fruit. That's the concept of discipleship. This is important for us to understand. You see, because there's such a thing as bearing fruit, and that fruit just rots on the vine. It doesn't produce anything. It just drops off and boom. And unfortunately, that's how many churches do their business. They emphasize soul winning, and then they win the souls. They do not lead them on to spiritual growth, and they just drop off. There's not fruit that remain. This truth is not taught, I believe, much less practiced in too many churches today. This lack, I believe, has led to another false notion that needs to be corrected if the church is to full, it's to fulfill its divine mandate to make disciple. And this is the truth that we must remember. The gathering together of the church like this is not to evangelize the lost, but rather it's to edify, to equip those who have been saved and enable them to scatter into the world, to go into the world. And as they are going, to evangelize the unbeliever and then bring them into the gathering of the church so they could be discipled and the process continues. Do you get the concept? Do you get the idea? That, I believe, is the mandate of the church. And so here is what I believe is the proper sequence of disciple-making process. If you just look at that uh, diagram on the screen again. Notice, encounter the triune God through worship, the word of God through instruction, the people of God through fellowship, and the world God loves through evangelism. But we must begin with the worship. We must begin with a close relationship to God. And as we are instructed in the word, that closeness comes. We fellowship with God's people in love and unity. And then we are able to leave here and to reach the loss for Jesus Christ. Then we bring them into the fellowship and the process continues. But it must be based on those who have a close relationship with God and are seen as true disciples of Jesus Christ. Now this is a concept that we practice here and we believe to be solidly biblical. 
And so we do not take too much heed to what man has come up with today to bring the crowds in. For instance, uh, you know, when we say that we don't cater to the unsaved in this service, does it mean that we don't love you and we have we such a joy to have you here? It is. We love you and it's a joy to have you here. But don't expect for us to entertain you by having secular songs, for instance, or on Super Bowl day to show the game here rather than worshiping. Many churches do that, saying that they are winning the loss. I don't believe that's the way God has set up for us. We are here to edify, to build up the people of God, to equip them so they go out to win the loss and to bring them into the church. It is not the responsibility of the pastor teacher to do evangelization within the church. It is the obligation and responsibility of you as individual Christians to do that when you go into the world, as we saw when we looked at the Great Commission. So that's the concept we'll be working on, and I'm going to develop that later on to show you how we are trying to do it here at Calvary Bible Church. But we're going to have a short break now as the Living Stone comes up to minister to us in song.
Now, the principles or the truths I just mentioned concerning the fact that the church's mandate is to make disciples and not converts, and that the purpose for the church gathering like this is to equip God's people and to enable them to uh, grow towards Christian maturity. Now, let me emphasize, though, no matter how many times you come out faithfully to the 11 a.m. service, this is not sufficient to mature you. There are other uh, opportunities that you must avail yourself to, as we'll discuss in a moment. But the point is here, I want to emphasize that these truths that I mentioned already is what I call truths or facts that go with evangelism 101. In other words, they are basic. If you don't get this right, then all of your evangelism efforts are going to go off course. You must understand that the mandate is to make disciples, not to make converts. And uh, these truths, then, are the basics we need to put into practice if we are to accomplish the mandate of making disciples and not just converts, who more often than not die on the vine due either to the lack of depth of soil or because of cares of the world or perhaps the evil one simply snatching the word away from them before it can take root through proper discipling by a mature Christian. Rather than remaining and bringing forth fruit themselves as expected and demanded by Jesus Christ himself, the master of those who are true disciples. These, I say then, are basic truths that either have not been taught on the whole by the church or simply not obeyed by most Christians. And as a result, we have actually changed the rules of the game, I believe, when it comes to doing church and doing evangelism. We have moved the goalposts, as it were, from where God has placed them. And so when we think we have scored, we really haven't scored at all. We've simply fulfilled our own goals, our own criteria, not those of the head of the church and the master of true disciples. We have abandoned, I believe, and I want to emphasize this because I'm so convinced of this, we have abandoned the basics of discipling making and replaced them with our own imposed basics of winning souls and seeing how many notches we can have on our belt or how many we could say at the end of the year. I have, I have led so many people to Christ and you ask them, where are they? I don't know. I just led them. That's all. Where did you lead them? That's the question. We have inverted the process, making evangelism not discipleship, the church's priority. Let me repeat that. We have inverted the process, making evangelism not discipleship, which is the church's priority. Here is something else I want to emphasize. It is this. The invitation of the gospel in the New Testament is never to invite people to make a profession but rather to trust Jesus Christ as Savior so as to become his true disciple. You don't just invite someone to make a profession. It, that's why it amazes me sometimes when you ask people to give a testimony. They will say, I made a profession 20 years ago. But you look at their life. You look at their knowledge of the word of God and so on, and there's just nowhere that can be compared to 20 years after that profession. This, I say again, is an essential discipleship 
basic truth that has been either forgotten or simply abandoned by the church for the most part, certainly here in the Bahamas. This is why I think we need to go back to the basics. I read some time ago of a football coach named John Wooden. It is said that when he started to instruct his men on the game, he would always ask them to bring their socks and their shoes. And he says, first of all, the man would grumble, why in the world I have to bring my socks and shoes to a football practice? And he says, John would always begin, he'd pick up the socks, neatly folded and everything. He says, man, these are socks. Here's how you fold them. You fold them in such a way so there's no wrinkles, so that when you put them on, there is no wrinkle in the shoe when you put your shoes on. Here is how you put your shoes on. And he showed them how to strap up the, the, the uh, laces, how to say, now don't tighten it too much and don't leave it too loose. Because if you tighten too much and your, and your socks are not folded properly, you can have problems when you play the game. He says, I've lost too many games, too many men at the end of the year to, who had bad feet or sore feet or something because they didn't know how to fold their socks and they didn't know how to put on their shoes. So men, here are the socks, here are the shoes, here's how you do it. Then there's the famous Vince Lombardi. I think that's the pronunciation, Lombardi. He was a well-known uh, coach. In fact, these guys, I understand, were the leading coaches of the most winning games in, when they were coaching. He had something very similar that he would do. When the man came into the room or for training, he said he would always begin by holding up a football. He says, man, you see this? This is a football made of pig skin. See that? This is a football. And the guy say, we know this is a football. He says, well, I just want you to know how to handle it. And then you teach him how to hold the ball and everything else. But he says, this is a football. Then he goes to explain the basics of the game. And he's talked about making sure that you run in the right direction. He says, now, no matter how fast you are, how well a catcher you are, if you catch a great pass and you run towards the opposite goal, even if you score, it's not your score. You've got to be sure that you know your, where your goal post is and you always head for your goal post, not the goal posts of the opposing team. I believe today, though, that we have actually moved the goalposts when it comes to discipleship and evangelism. We have moved the goalposts and set up our own goalposts. We've removed the goalposts given to us in the Bible and we placed up our own goalposts. For instance, we have actually come to believe that the best place to evangelize is in a church service like this. Think about it. Is that what you think too? That the best place to evangelize is in a church service such as this one. Now this is absolutely contrary to the word of God. Absolutely contrary. And is also contrary to the practice of the early church. In fact, Paul insisted in the first Corinthians that the purpose for the church gathered is first and foremost for worship, for edification, and equipping members to become disciple makers themselves and for the fellowship of God's people. Paul gives absolutely no instructions on accommodating or catering to the needs of the unbeliever in a church service. None. In fact, 
There are only two direct references in the New Testament regarding an unsaved person's relationship to a Christian service. Let me give you a first reference, and then I'll look at the second one. Now, the context of this first reference is the lie of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember the story? They lie. They promised to give so much, but when they sold the land, they probably got more than they thought and didn't want to give all of it to the church. And so Paul said they lied to the Holy Spirit. And you know what happened. They all died. But now listen to the text. This is in the book of Acts chapter 5. Great fear came over the whole church. That's the believer now. And over all who heard of these things, that's the unsaved. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord, that's unity, in Solomon's portico. Listen carefully now. But none of the rest, that's the unsaved, did to associate with them. They didn't go to church. They didn't attend the church service. However, they were held in high esteem by the people. In other words, and this is an amazing scripture to me, the believers were held in high regard by the unsaved, but yet none of them did to go to church meeting with them, to associate with them. Why? Because of the impact of their holy lifestyle. Their lifestyle was so different from the unsaved, they didn't want anything to do with it because of the focus upon holiness. That's one of the first references. Now here's the second reference to the relationship of the unsaved to the worship service. This one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now in this chapter, Paul was given instructions as to how the worship service is to be ordered. And this is what he says in chapter 14. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy, that's explaining the word, is for a sign, not to the unbelievers, but to those who believe. You see the difference there? One is geared specifically for evangelism. The other is for edification. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted or unbelievers enter, notice now, if an unsaved coming into a worship service, if, in other words, this was not the norm. It was not even the expected. It was the unusual. If, he would, if they will come in, will they not say that you are ma mad? But if all prophesy, speak in a way so everybody could understand, an unbeliever or ungifted man enters, he is convinced or convicted rather by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God declaring that God is certainly among you. Isn't that amazing? No gospel message, no invitation, just an orderly way of worshiping God. If they see the difference in God's people showing love and unity and worshiping God, the Bible says that could be conviction upon an unsaved person if they happen to come to your worship service. Isn't that amazing? 
That's the word of God. But how do we say today? Oh, no, no, no. We've got to entertain them. We've got to do what they want. We have to use the kinds of methodologies that attract them, the kind of things that they want, not what we want. That's just the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And as I say, my standards for evaluating effectiveness is not our standards, but the Word of God. And I believe this is the Word of God teaching. So these people, these unsaved, were convicted by the orderly, loving, united way that God's people worship. That's why we need to be taught how to worship. We need to be taught how to pray. We need to be taught how to understand the Word of God, how to study the Word of God. The unsaved person here saw the way the believers worshipped, their reverence for God and their high regard for the Word of God, and they were convicted. No evangelistic message, no invitation, just worshipping and praising God in a decent and orderly way, and be able to understand what was being said to one another. Now, if you remember the message I gave last week, they saw love, unity, and righteousness being lived out before them. And remember, in each of these cases, Jesus says, if you have love one for another, man will know that you're my disciples. If there's oneness, if you are one accord, man will know, and you will live a righteous lifestyle, Men will know that you're my disciples. And that's what's happening in these passages. And by the way, that's why our services are arranged and planned the way they are. We want to do things the biblical way so we can produce true disciples, not merely professing converts. So our services are designed to provide believers with an opportunity to encounter God through worship, encounter the word of God through expository preaching and teaching, and to encounter one another through fellowship, and so equip them to go back into the world to win converts and bring them into the church at that time so the process will continue again and again. That, to me, is the biblical concept of evangelism. In other words, and I repeat this again and again because these are basics, and we want to have it line upon line. I'm reminded of a young preacher who went to a church for the first time. Uh, he got up and he preached his first message. All the pastors and the elders, the deacons loved it. The people loved the message. Came in next week, he preached the same message. Everybody still liked it. Nobody said anything to him otherwise. Next week, he came and he preached the same message. He did it for six weeks straight. Finally, the eldest pastors and the deacon said, we got to talk to this young man. Is that the only sermon he has? So he called him up on the red carpet. And the fellow says, sir, I said, gentlemen, brethren, you notice that I was teaching the word of God, and the word of God told us as people of God we need to do certain things. He says, well, I haven't seen you all doing what the word of God says. And until I do, I'm going to preach the message again and again and again. So I'm getting almost to that position. I say that with love, all right? And so, because I believe the making of disciples is the primary function of the church, we have put in place a process by which we believe, if faithfully followed by each believer, will produce that biblically demanded product, which is true disciples. Let me give you what I believe to be a biblically-based definition of discipleship 
from a church's perspective upon which the process is based. You're looking at it from a corporate process, not the individual. We'll be dealing with that as we go on with our series. We'll be looking at it from a corporate perspective now. Here is my definition and what our entire process is based upon. Would you read this with me on the screen? Discipleship is the developmental process a local church utilizes to progressively lead Christians from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity so that they are themselves reproducing the process in others. That's my definition, and that is the principle for the programs that we have initiated. Notice a couple of important terms or concepts. Developmental, it's an ongoing, it's a process. Progressively leads Christians. You don't get grow into Christian maturity overnight. It takes a progressive development process. In other words, what I'm saying in more simple terms is this. Discipleship from a corporate basis is the process of turning a disciple into a disciple maker. Discipleship is the process of turning a disciple into a disciple maker. See, that's where he failed. We've only gone after converts. We've only gone after those who make a profession. We've not gone after making them to be reproducers, which is what a disciple is. In fact, the Bible seems to teach, Jesus Christ seems to teach himself, that one cannot really be a true disciple unless you are a disciple maker. Now that's sort of a radical thought by many Christians. Because there's some Christians, probably some right here, who have not talked about Jesus Christ, an unsaved person, for years, even though they've made a profession years and years ago. Satisfied with the profession, but yet not progressing into disciple-making, and therefore not a fruit that remains. So let's begin in the beginning of the process. What happens if you become a part of Calvary Bible Church? Remember, we are reviewing and evaluating whether or not we are fulfilling the purpose for our being here as a local church. This is what we're looking at. Let's begin then at the, at the process, becoming a part of Calvary Bible Church, either through conversion by someone leading you to Christ, or, as they say, by transfer from another local church. Or simply as a walk-in, you simply came in and you heard about Calvary and or what else, a friend invited you, but as a result, you stayed in and you want to become a part of Calvary Bible Church. Let me remind you of something as we go through this process. In fact, let me remind you of it now in order to show you why the process is instituted. We must know the product we want to produce before we can set in place a process. If we don't know what it is that we want to produce, Produce, then the process will not make sense. You understand what I'm saying? All right? So, another thing. In our case, as a local church, church, we want to make disciples. We do not want to make converts merely. We want to make disciples. And to order to do that, we must follow the process. In other words, if it is your desire to become a true disciple of Jesus Christ, and you become a part of Calvary Bible Church, there's a process you must follow. You must choose to follow this process. 
In fact, you'll find out that one of the greatest elements in becoming a true disciple is making the right choices, counting the cost, then making the choices to become a true disciple. We don't talk about counting costs for discipleship today. But you know, when you look at Jesus' qualifications or criteria, that's the first thing he said. Unless you take up your cross and follow me, what? You cannot be my disciple. You cannot. So he makes some stern requirements here. So I want you to look at me now. Look up here. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. All right? This is our rule book. And this book tells us that as a church, we ought to do what? Make disciples. This is a Bible. All right? Not a man-made book. This is the Bible. And this Bible tells us to make disciples, not converts. So how then is Calvary Bible Church doing this? Remember now, the desired product is the result of going through the proper process. Uh, we have what I call the incorporation process. Let's say you're a new member. We encourage you, if you want to become a member of Calvary Bible Church, that you don't apply for membership until you've attended at least six months or a year so that you could become familiar with the people, familiar with our ministry, familiar with our beliefs before you make a commitment to become a part of this body. Because we believe that if you become, make a commitment, God has called you here. God has called you here, and he's called you here because you have something this body needs. As much as you might have a need that this body can give you, we have something that you need. So we ask you to wait for at least six months to a year before you make that commitment. Then once you go through the application, uh, we put you in a membership class where we again evaluate and we ask you for your testimony, how you became a Christian, and so on. But then we give you a history of Calvary Bible Church, how we got here, how did it start. We give you the wonderful story of, Miss, of Pastor Earl Weish and his wife Violet and how God used them to establish this work here. And we try to make it clear that this church was not started because of a split, like many people imagine or think, but rather because of a conviction of this man of God that concerning certain truths in the Bible that he could not continually go on with. And so he made a decision to do something else. So we gave a history of Calvary Bible Church. Then we explained the government of Calvary Bible Church, how we are ruled. We tried to explain this plurality of leadership concept, which really is a difficult one to understand. We like to say that all of our pastors have the same authority. Our pastors are, in theory, supposed to be involved in ministries that reflect their own passion, their own gifts. All right? That's why we have a plurality, because one man, we believe, cannot properly meet our ministers or all of the needs of the congregation. And so we like to be sure that the pastors are in their area of ministry. That's the theory. That's the way it's supposed to go. Now, sometimes it's difficult getting it in place, but that's the way it is to go. And that's how the plurality of leadership is practiced here at Calvary Bible. We go into detail. Then we talk about doctrine, what we believe. 
And we try to distinguish between the essentials and non-essentials. That there's some things that we just cannot tolerate as a body when it comes to doctrine. For instance, if you say you cannot believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you cannot be a member of Calvary Bible Church. If you do not believe that we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone because of the blood of Christ, but you believe you could work and earn it, you cannot be a member of Calvary Bible Church. But now if you believe that Christ is coming in the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation, that's not an essential doctrine. But we want you to know what we teach. Now if you become uh, involved and you want to teach, you cannot teach what you believe. You have to teach what we believe or you cannot teach. That's the theory. That's how it's supposed to work. Now, does it work out like that all the time? No. Sometimes we have little frustrations here and there because certain things happen without our, with enough control and so on. But we like to say if we err at all, we like to err on the side of grace rather than the side of legalism. Then we go through the process of helping the person discover what their gifts are if they do not know what the gifts are. We have an inventory we go through with them, and they go out and they decide, yes, this is my gift, I believe. This is what I believe God has gifted me to do, and this is my passion. Then we try to match those with the ministries that we have. And then I, because I'm the one who does part of the, the, uh, the, the uh, classes, I would ask the individual to get in touch with the leader of that ministry that they feel that they can serve in or want to serve in, have a passion for. And then I would ask the leader to get in touch with that person as well. That's the process, the idea that once you become a member, you are immediately involved in a in a, in a ministry. Now again, does it work out like that all the time? No. Sometimes people just don't do what you tell them to do. And simply because we don't have a legalistic thing, so if you don't do this, you can't become a member, we, don't, we just try to encourage them to do it. All right? So that's the process. Now what about new members? By the way, we also, assigned, we also assign uh, the new member to a mini church and to a discovery class, which I'll be talking about in a moment. They are assigned. They don't choose this mini church. They don't choose the discovery class. We assign them to that based on where we believe they are spiritually and so on. All right? Now, what about new or current members? They are encouraged to participate. Notice the word encourage. We cannot demand it. We cannot order them to do it. But we, we make the opportunity available. That's what we do as leaders. We make the opportunity available and encourage people to take advantage of that opportunity. If they don't, that's their choice. But we believe there will be no spiritual growth. These are the people probably most likely who have more complaints and criticisms than those who are involved. Why? Because they're not a part of the process. All right? But now, let me deal with one of the things we put in place that we believe leads to Christian maturity. It's what we call the discovery classes. This is a group, this is a uh, series of studies that lead a person from salvation point up to sharing the gospel to others and encourage them to do the same thing. It's called the discovery classes. You have a description of them in your bulletin. And on the other side of that, there is a testimony by Bonner, George Bonner. He is a well-known uh, person in the United States who does a lot of surveys, churches, and so on. 
And he was quite impressed with this particular uh, series of studies, and I have that there for you as well. Now, I've used it because Jane Getz was the, Dr. Jane Getz was the person behind these classes, and as you know, I was involved with that ministry with Jane for several years in Dallas, Texas. In fact, we went through some of these things even before they were put in booklet form. So, the first series is called Discovering the Christian Life. This has 12 lessons in it. Each of the four modules have 12 lessons dealing with different aspects of the Christian life. This first class, or group of classes, deals with a study of foundational truths of Christian living. We go over the plan of salvation, as we call it again. We go over assurance. We talk about baptism. And as I mentioned before, Sister, Sister Reach went through this first class. This just shows you the kind of humble person she is. She's a woman who's been in the ministry for years and years, teaching this thing over and over. But she started in class one. Now, don't forget, she came there and obviously, Pastor Lee, I've never learned so much about baptism all my life as I learned in this class. And the class didn't have a teacher, mind you, as we'll see in a moment. It was just people sharing. It's a textbook and so on. But we deal with these basic truths, prayer, forgiveness, and those basic things that have to do with a new Christian. After you finish these courses, 12 classes, you go to the next one, which is called Discovering Intimacy with God. This is a study of how to deepen one's relationship with God. Bible study, Bible reading, prayer, devotions, and all of those things. That's what we deal with in, those, in that particular book. Then, book three is discovering a role in God's family. This is a study of God's purpose for the believer in the local church. This is what we deal with what we're talking about right now. But it talks about gifts and abilities and so on. We try to help you to really nail down what it is you believe God has gifted you to do and where's your passion and how we could find it in the local church. Unfortunately, many believers who have been saved for a long time never go through this process. And all they do is come out of church and sit in a pew. Now, we thank God that you come to church. We thank God that you sit in a pew. But we want to see growth. You understand? That's what we're here for, for growth. Then the fourth module is discovering how to share your faith. This is where evangelism and discipleship making goes into detail. This is a study of biblical evangelism and how to share one's faith in a non-threatening fashion. In other words, how to become a disciple maker, how to become a reproducer. So see, the idea, the concept behind all of this, if you follow the process, the product will be a true disciple, person who is making disciples by winning people to Jesus Christ and establishing them in the faith. That's the process that we follow there. Now, all of these are designed to build relationship with God and with one another. Because remember the two great commandments, love God with all your heart and one another, right? Others as yourselves. These classes are designed to create an atmosphere for that, for that to, be, to be realized, to be uh, affected. Because we believe it's not just giving information. You see, a lot of discipleship programs is only, dis, is only information. Learn this, learn that, and so on, and you're okay. Relationship is lost. The idea of relationship with God, relationship with one another. And so we build on this here. Um, and we believe that if you follow the process, the product will be realized. 
But if you don't follow the process, it will not be. In fact, you'll find that people who started and then fall out and don't go all the way, as I say, they even become not a part of the body anymore in a sense of involvement for the body. They might be involved with something for themselves, but not for the body. And we don't believe that's biblical. We believe it's necessary to go through the entire process if the product of becoming a true, belief, a true disciple will be realized. That is the first thing that we work on in trying to produce a true disciple. Now, this discovery class involves three vital ingredients. Facilitators who facilitate discussion, not lecture, preach, or otherwise dominate the discussion. In other words, we got input from everybody. But it's not based on people pooling their ignorance, but rather pooling the knowledge that they learn from the things that they go through before coming to class. I'll explain that in a moment. It also involves participants who study the lessons and complete the assigned questions at home. In other words, you go through it at home, you study the passage, you come up with your own conclusions, your own application, so that when you come to discuss, you'll have something to contribute. Sometimes you might be corrected. Other times you might correct others. But it's a sharing of what you've learned but it's based on knowledge, not on ignorance. And that's why it's important for you to participate in the discussion. Participation is important. It's an interactive process. It is not learning in isolation or listening to a lecture, but learning through interactive discussion with other well-informed group participants. We try not to ask a person when you read the scriptures, what does this scripture mean to you? But we simply ask, what did the scripture mean? What is the teaching of the scripture? What does it say before we can say how it's applied to you? To be effective then, this process demands three vital ingredients. Because each discovery course encourages the participants to be involved with their head, their heart, and their hands. Let's look at, first of all, the head. Each lesson is built around theological biblical reflection. Members are asked to grapple with the pertinent issue. Each lesson has an issue or truth. To study the scriptures for themselves and to read meaningful articles on the subject which is provided for you and then you formulate your own conclusions. That's where your own involvement comes in as far as your intellect is concerned. Group discussion encourage further reflection on and refining of a particular biblical truth. This process helps participants to develop a truly Christian worldview, which is what we're at, all about trying to help Christians develop a worldview. For instance, right now, we are dealing with this gambling referendum. A Christian's worldview is going to determine how many Christians vote, their worldview. So it's very important here. Then, when it comes to the heart, group discussions are opportunities to encourage one another to apply the truth learned. Accountability is encouraged. In other words, if you write down and says, I, I uh, did something to an individual. I gossiped about Pastor Fowler, but I'm going to apologize to him. We would say, okay, that's great. When are you going to do it? What time? How are you going to do it? Are you going to call them 
or you're going to go to his house, what are you going to do? We try to make sure that they're very specific. And then when we come back the following week, the first question we ask you, did you get in contact with Pastor Fowler? Now, Pastor Fowler is a bad example here because nobody criticizes Pastor Fowler. It all comes this way. All right? Hands. Each lesson concludes with an opportunity to take steps to obey. Each one. Because discovery is all about life transformation through spiritual growth based on or as a result of obedience to the word of God as enabled by the Holy Spirit. And it's amazing how when you discuss these things together, how our greed, how our avarice, how our pride could come to the forefront and how we need to discuss it and sometimes even ask forgiveness of the group. It's just amazing how these things work because of relationship emphasis. So the discovering learning process, step one, you grasp the issue, you study the scriptures, you consult the sources, you form a response, and you take steps to obey. That's the process we carry you through to each lesson. The desired end result is spiritual maturity, Christ-likeness, a true disciple, one who's able to give an answer for the hope that is in you, and you are equipped to do every good work. And it's all for the glory of God. That's the process we've set in motion here by using these discovery classes. Now, we have another one that we put on. And, uh, but let me remind you of our chart again. When we do this, we believe that we'll be able to fulfill the mandate by going through this process of providing the proper resources, the proper process for people to become true disciples of Jesus Christ. So the discovery course is one of the main ones. The next one is what we call mini church. 